The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today we'll be spending a second week looking at Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. May God bless the reading of his word. you, Linda. Let's pray together. Father, we understand from Hebrews 4 that your word is living and active. So may it be living and active in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If there's one thing that the vast majority of our society has in common. It's that we're all busy. (laughs) And many of us would say, really busy. Uh, One author named Wayne Muller describes the situation in this way. As the founder of a public charity, I visit the large offices of wealthy donors, the crowded rooms of social service agencies, and the small houses of the poorest families. Remarkably, within this mosaic, there is a universal refrain, I am so busy. It does not seem to matter if the people I speak with are doctors or daycare workers, shopkeepers or social workers, parents or teachers, nurses or lawyers, students or therapists, community activists or cooks. Their work in the world rarely feels light, pleasant, or healing. Instead, As it all piles endlessly upon itself, the whole experience of being alive begins to melt into one enormous obligation. It becomes the standard greeting everywhere. I am so busy. Is that not an accurate description of so many of us in modern American society? I mean, you'd think... Just with all of the uh, technologies that we've developed over the past few centuries, and with all the time-saving devices that we have in our homes, that you know, we'd be less busy than anyone has ever been in the history of the world. And yet, strangely, it seems to be the opposite. So often it feels like we're drowning in you know, responsibilities and activities and obligations and work and just other forms of busyness. Yet the Bible shows us a better way to live. And that better way begins with the foundational teaching of Genesis 2, 1 through 3. In these verses, God marks off the seventh day as a day that's very special. As we see in the previous chapter, he had just spent six days creating the universe 
And we then read this about the seventh day in Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the seventh day is mentioned three times in the span of these two verses. That should clue us in that it's important. Right? It's a special day. And the thing that makes it so special isn't just that God rested himself on that day, but also that it says he blessed that day and made it holy, the text says. Now, this is actually the first time that the word holy is used in the Bible, and it refers to something that's set apart. Uh, the root meaning of the original Hebrew word translated holy refers to cutting something as in cutting it off or separating it into its own unique category. And that's what we're told God does with the seventh day. He cuts it off from the other six days and sets it apart as a day that's unique. Not only that, but we also read that he blesses the seventh day. And one thing that's interesting to notice is that this is now the third time that we're told in the book of Genesis that God has blessed something. So in Genesis 1.22, he blessed animals, and in Genesis 1.28, he blessed people. And in both instances, his blessing was related to promoting their fruitfulness. Right after his blessing on animals in Genesis 1.22, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and right after his blessing on humans in Genesis 1:28, he, again, tells them also to be fruitful and multiply. So as we read about this third blessing in the Bible that God pronounces in Genesis 2:3, we have good reason to believe that this blessing also is related to fruitfulness in some way. So just as God's blessing made animals and humans physically fruitful, his blessing makes the seventh day spiritually fruitful. As one commentator writes, God's blessing bestows on this special, holy, solemn day a power which makes it fruitful for human existence. The blessing gives the day, which is a day of rest, the power to stimulate, animate, enrich, and give fullness to life. The seventh day is one of perpetual spiritual spring a day of multiplication and fruitfulness. So then, that naturally leads us to the question, what is the significance of this day for us? That's what I'd like to spend the rest of our time exploring this morning. Is God laying down some sort of universal law that he expects us to obey? Like, are we required to approach the seventh day in a certain manner, and if so, then what would that look like? Or, on the other side of the spectrum, is this passage merely telling us about what God did without necessarily any implications about what we should do? So what's the significance of this day for us? Well, I'm glad you asked. In order to answer that question, there are several other passages in the Bible that we need to examine. 
The first of which is Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. In this passage, God's in the middle of giving the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, and he tells them in what's known as the Fourth Commandment to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now does that last verse sound familiar to anyone? Maybe just a little bit, right? God's referencing our main passage back in Genesis 2 as his reason for commanding the Israelites to observe a weekly Sabbath day. That is a weekly day of rest. Interesting. Now, it's important for us to remember that this is a command that God gave to the nation of Israel as his chosen people back in Old Testament times. He's not issuing a command for people outside the nation of Israel, necessarily. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't certain timeless and universally applicable principles that that we can extract from this command, but it does mean that we need to be very careful, as with anything in in the Old Testament law, we, we need to be careful not to just assume that God's requirements for us today are exactly the same as his requirements for ancient Israel. And we actually find a significant indicator that there might be some uniqueness uh, to this Sabbath command later on in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 31, 12 and 13, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. God then continues speaking a few verses later and says in verses 16 and 17, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So God states two times that the Sabbath is a sign between him and and his people Israel. So we find no indication that God expected Gentile or non-Israelite nations to observe the Sabbath. Instead, he seems to go out of his way in Exodus 31 to indicate the uniqueness of the Sabbath as something that's between him and his people Israel. So that's the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Well, it's very significant that the New Testament nowhere commands Christians to observe the Sabbath, right? Um, In Acts 15, when the leaders of the church of Jerusalem are laying down required practices for Gentile churches, they don't mention anything about the Sabbath day. Not only that, but in all of the Apostle Paul's letters to the, the Gentile churches, Isn't it interesting that he doesn't give any indication that these these Christians should observe the Sabbath? I mean, just think through Paul's letters, if if you've read them, think about all of the different 
sins and shortcomings that he addresses in, in these churches, right? I mean, they, they were deficient and in, in less than God wanted to be in all kinds of ways. And Paul brings these sins to their attention in his letters, yet never once does he mention anything about them observing the Sabbath. And so, in fact, it, it, and this is where things get pretty decisive, we actually find several verses in Paul's letters that explicitly teach that Christians aren't in any way bound to observe a specific day of the week as a Sabbath day. In Romans 14, 1 and 5, Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, that is, that their conscience is weak, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So what kind of day is Paul talking about? I think it's fairly clear that he's talking about the Sabbath day, or at least that what he says uh, includes the Sabbath day. Like, I don't see how the Sabbath could be exempt from Paul's teaching here. He basically says, if you, if you want to observe the Sabbath, go for it. <laughs> but you certainly don't have to, right? You're not required to observe the Sabbath as a New Testament believer. Then another passage that speaks to this issue very clearly is Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or what? A Sabbath. Yes, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So here he mentions the Sabbath by name. And says that we're not supposed to let other people judge us based on whether or not we observe the Sabbath. He then states that the Sabbath, among other things, is a shadow of the things to come. And think about that metaphor. A shadow. It doesn't have any reality in and of itself. Like, it doesn't consist of anything. Rather, it's simply the absence of something. It's the absence of light or maybe a lesser amount of light in a certain area. So a shadow is only significant because of what it points to, the object that's blocking the light and creating the shadow. Similarly, Paul says, the Sabbath is just a shadow of the things to come. And we'll talk more about what exactly those things are in a little while. So where does all this leave us? Well, especially in light of these strikingly clear, in my opinion, New Testament passages in Romans and Colossians about the freedom Christians enjoy in this area, I think it's pretty difficult to interpret our main passage back in Genesis 2 as a timeless command to observe a weekly Sabbath day. Um, and actually, as we look at these verses in Genesis more closely, notice that we don't find any statement that directly addresses people or says anything explicit about our responsibility. We simply read that about what God did, right? That God rested on the seventh day and blessed that day and made it holy. The text doesn't mandate any specific behavior on our part. So here's what I believe that we can conclude about this passage. 
God models a pattern of work and rest that brings blessing to his people. That's what I believe is the main idea of Genesis 2, 1 through 3. It's as simple as that, really. God models a pattern of work and rest that brings blessing to his people. And as you can see from the way that statement's worded, God's not instituting a law or laying down any sort of absolute requirement. He's simply showing us a general pattern consisting of six days of work and one day of rest that brings blessing to our lives. And even though this isn't given as an absolute requirement, I would still say it's a pattern that we would do well to follow. Brothers and sisters, rest is a gift of God. Instead of living a life that's busy and barren, a life of running ourselves ragged as we rush from this activity over here to that obligation over there, God invites us to establish a pattern of habitual rest in our lives. And so I'd like to encourage you to follow that pattern. That, I guess we could call it a pattern of blessing that's instituted here in Genesis 2. And devote one day each week to rest. And let that day be a reminder to you that life is more than work. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked pretty extensively about the value of work and, and how to do work as worship to God. But work isn't all there is to life. I've heard it said that we were created to be human beings, not merely human doings. And devoting one day each week to rest reminds us of that. Also, let me go a step beyond that and encourage you to select Sunday as your day of rest, if at all possible. And the, the reason I say that is because that's the day that the early church, the church of the New Testament, set aside as what they called the Lord's Day. That specific phrase, the Lord's Day, comes from Revelation 1.10 and refers to a designation that was common, if not universal, among the early Christians. The expression itself seems to the, point to the fact that this was a day uniquely set apart to the Lord. Of course, we're supposed to be devoted to the Lord every day, but the very existence of the expression Lord's Day in the New Testament implies that there was something regarded special about this day in particular. It was a day set aside for Christians to focus their attention on the Lord even more than usual. We also know from Acts 20, verse 7, that the Lord's Day was on Sunday and not on Saturday, and that it was a day when the early Christians gathered for worship. Now, unlike the Sabbath, resting on the Lord's Day was not an absolute requirement or a law. So this isn't some sort of Christian Sabbath. I really don't like that phrase. Not a Christian Sabbath, not some sort of Sabbath 2.0. It's different. However, hear me when I say that there is still strong biblical precedent and immense spiritual benefit 
in setting aside the Lord's Day for rest and spiritual refreshment. Um, If you're taking notes, that'd be a good summary statement to write down. There's strong biblical precedent and immense spiritual benefit in setting aside the Lord's Day for rest and spiritual refreshment. And notice that I've started using the phrase spiritual refreshment. Where did that come from? Well, as we study the concept of rest in the Bible, it seems that rest and spiritual refreshment were two sides of the same coin. Look back with me to a verse we looked at before, Exodus 31, 17. God's speaking to Moses about the Sabbath and states, It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Did you catch that? In Genesis 2, it just said that God rested. Didn't mention anything explicit about being refreshed. But here, in a passage that's just as much inspired scripture, it says that God both rested and was refreshed, showing simply that the two of them go together. And by the way, just to clarify, this doesn't mean that God was really tired after working hard for six days and needed a day to get rested up and replenish his energy. Uh, No, God is infinite and all-powerful and doesn't have those kinds of limitations. Instead, scholars tell us that the word rest in this context uh, simply refers to ceasing his creative work. And the word refreshed refers to experiencing satisfaction and delight. And so unlike us finite creatures, God doesn't need rest and refreshment in order to recover from his work. However, his example is still instructive for us and shows us that rest and refreshment go together. And that's also uh, what we see both with the Israelites in their mandatory observance of the Sabbath in the Old Testament, as well as with Christians and their voluntary observance of the Lord's Day in the New Testament. In both Old and New Testaments, with both Israel and Christians resting, it wasn't just about taking a break from certain activities, but about replacing those ordinary activities with special activities that bring spiritual refreshment. So as you think about how to observe the Lord's Day in your own life, understand that it's not just a day to do whatever you want to do that technically isn't work. Rather, it's a day to engage in activities that bring refreshment to our souls. So, um, binge-watching Netflix probably doesn't qualify. (laughs) Uh, Spending endless hours scrolling through Instagram and TikTok probably doesn't qualify. Even though those activities might not technically be work, it's just hard for me to see how they could bring you spiritual or even emotional or mental refreshment. And to be honest, the same goes for all forms of of entertainment. Friends, understand that entertainment is something that occupies us, not something that typically refreshes us. Right? It's kind of like maybe the, the fillers that a lot of fast food restaurants will put in their hamburgers. Right? I mean, it's there, and you can consume it, 
but it's not really doing anything for you and can even be harmful potentially at times. And so that's, that's what entertainment, uh, I think, is by, by its nature. So sitting on the couch all day, watching Netflix or scrolling through social media for hours on end isn't what I mean when I talk about spiritual refreshment. Instead, I'm talking about activities like, first and foremost, gathering with other Christians for worship, like we're doing right now. I mean, that should be like the greatest priority of our Lord's Day, and truth be told, the, the greatest priority of our entire week, I believe. Also engaging in Bible study and prayer on your own, and reading other things that feed your soul, and spending face-to-face time with your family, your friends, or perhaps even taking a nap, or engaging in other activities that have a refreshing effect, maybe hobbies, especially out in nature, in God's creation, I would say. So these are all the kinds of activities that seem to most naturally fit with what the Bible tells us about the Lord's Day. Now, as you might be thinking already, what I'm suggesting does indeed require a high level of intentionality. A restful and refreshing Lord's Day doesn't just happen. It requires planning. You'll have to take care of certain practical responsibilities on Saturday rather than Sunday. And also, it, it requires prioritizing what you're going to be involved with. Like, you, you may not be able to squeeze in all of the activities and clubs and projects that you'd otherwise be able to squeeze in to your weekend. And finally, a restful and refreshing Lord's Day requires faith. You have to believe that God is going to take care of you and your career even if you don't spend a few extra hours working on that project or immediately answering all the the emails that continually seem to be flooding your inbox. Now, of course, there are always extenuating circumstances, but in general, you just have to trust God with all those things if you're going to have a restful and refreshing Lord's Day. Have faith that God can provide for your needs. He really can if you just work six days a week instead of seven. I mean, he does it for Chick-fil-A, and he can do it for you as well. Always align in front of that place. And understand that by giving us the Lord's Day, God really is giving us an amazing gift. Like, he understands our tendency to get ourselves in a place where we're drowning in our busyness. And so he gives us the gift of one day each week, known as the Lord's Day, that he invites us to use for rest and spiritual refreshment. Kevin DeYoung describes it as an island of get-to in an ocean of have-to. That's what the Lord's Day gives us space to enjoy. An island of get-to in an ocean of have to. Of course, I understand that some people do really have to work on the Lord's Day. Um, I'm actually one of those people, right? In addition to doctors and nurses and police officers and, and, and people like that. So if you also are one of those people, that's okay. Thank you 
for what you do to uh, contribute to our society in that way. You know, personally, I am so grateful that a few years ago when my wife Becky went into labor on a Sunday, that there were doctors and nurses at that hospital to deliver the baby. I don't know how to deliver a baby. I mean, I look on YouTube for a lot of different things and and figure those things out, but I did not want to look on YouTube to, to deliver this baby, right? So praise God for the people who serve our society who are in those essential positions and and have to work on Sundays. However, if that's you, my advice is to just do what you can to establish a regular pattern in your life of setting aside time at some point during the week for rest and spiritual refreshment. Uh, Personally, I try to do that on Saturdays. So just think about how you can follow the general pattern God instituted in Genesis 2 of six days of work and one day of rest. Yet there's an even deeper aspect of the rest God has for us that we need to be aware of. The ultimate way in which we rest isn't merely by devoting one day each week to restful activities, but by resting in Christ. Remember Colossians 2.17? The Sabbath was a shadow, but Christ, he's the substance. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And not only of the Sabbath itself, but of every kind of rest that's modeled in the Bible, including what we see in our main passage in Genesis 2. And Jesus gives us an amazing invitation in Matthew 11:28 through 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give it to you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So do you want rest? Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. In the original context, he was referring to the legalistic tendencies of Jewish religion in the first century, where people tried to earn God's favor and merit a right standing with God through their adherence to the Old Testament law. However, his invitation here is a standing invitation for anyone with any kind of burden on their shoulders. As we see here, he directs his invitation to all, everyone, who labor and are heavy laden. So are you weary, let's say, of trying to prove your worth through your career advancement? Come to me, Jesus says. I'll give you rest. Are you weary of trying to fabricate an identity for yourself that's based on what other people think about you? Come to me, Jesus says. I will give you rest. Are you weary of trying to earn God's love and acceptance through your own moral performance or by various religious observances? Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Friends, the ultimate answer to our weariness 
isn't merely incorporating a new practical habit into our weekly routine. It's Jesus. Jesus himself is the ultimate answer to our weariness. You see, beneath all the other forms of weariness in our lives, there's what we might call a weariness of the soul, a form of weariness that isn't caused by a busy schedule, but rather by our sin and the way our sin has separated us from God. You see, since God himself is the source of all true life and vitality, to be separated from God is to be cut off from that life and vitality, resulting in a weariness of the soul. So it doesn't matter how many vacations you go on or how many nice things you buy for yourself or how popular you become on social media or how successful you become in your career. Apart from God, we'll always be spiritually restless and empty. But Jesus offers us rest in a way that is more comprehensive than we can even imagine. Even though our sins have alienated us from God and in reality made us deserving of God's judgment, Jesus came to this earth and suffered that judgment in our place on the cross. Like God's judgment should have come down on you and me. But in his mercy, Jesus stood in our place and suffered that judgment on our behalf, thereby satisfying God the Father's justice and bridging the gap between us and God. And because of what Jesus has done in his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead, you and I can be reconciled to God and enjoy a relationship with God, not only in this life, but throughout all eternity. And let me emphasize that this reconciled relationship with God comes not through our moralistic efforts, but through Jesus alone. It's not about what we do, but about what Jesus has already done. We become right with God, not by striving and working, but rather by trusting and resting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's the ultimate rest that the Bible holds out to us, resting in Jesus with the confidence that we don't have to be good enough for God because Jesus was already good enough for God in our place. And even those, uh, for those who are already Christians and have already put their trust in Jesus in this way, uh, let me ask you this. Are you experiencing that rest on a daily basis? Or have you slipped into more of a performance-based mentality? thinking that God's love for you is somehow dependent on how well you perform or on how good of a Christian you manage to be on that particular day. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that as a Christian, you're already dearly loved and entirely accepted by God through Jesus. 
And until you learn to rest in Jesus in that way, you'll never be able to truly be at rest. I once heard it said that without Christ, we will work even while we are resting. And with Christ, we will rest even while we are working. Isn't that good? Without Christ, we will work even while we are resting. And with Christ, we will rest even while we are working. See, it's not until we learn to rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that we'll be able to truly be at rest. Until then, guys, even the nicest getaways and the most enjoyable hobbies won't bring us true rest. Instead, they'll function more like a drug, providing temporary distraction, but no true remedy. Only in Christ do we find true rest. That's where we were reminded just a few weeks ago. Um, I mentioned this, this famous quote by Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are, you remember it? Restless. Until they rest in you. 